It's something for nothing, the Rush fan cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, do you know what all Rush fans have in common? Um, they all love to donate blood. <laughs> That's true, but they also have an extensive Rush book collection. That, that is true. Right? That is true, yeah. Doesn't every Rush fan you know have a wall with Rush books just lined up? Yep, absolutely. Well, we're going to add another book to that list for Rush fans to purchase. But first, I must tell you, you can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, you can find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. The base intro and outro, that is Lex. He has lots of Rush books, too. Subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app. And I hear you have a terrific email to get us started here, Jerry. Well, I have an email from Ryan, our good friend over at Rush Fans on Instagram. And it's not terrific? Oh, no, no, it's terrific. Of course it is. <laughs> That's not what I meant. He wrote to us about our top five albums podcast because he was questioning whether or not our top five albums were our favorite albums or the best Rush albums. Both. That's what I think, right? That's what I said back to him, that they're both because I like my favorite ones are the ones I think are the best. Yeah. My favorite Rush albums are the ones that I believe are the five best. Right. That's So that's, what, okay, maybe I don't have to read the email then. That's basically the whole thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he said, he said, the top five albums episode was a very enjoyable listen. However, to me, there is a distinct difference between what I believe are the top five best Rush albums versus what are my personal top five favorites. A favorite, in this he's doing the old Per Webster's Dictionary thing. Okay. A favorite is defined as a person or thing that is especially popular or particularly well-liked by someone. The best is defined as that which is the most excellent, outstanding, or desirable. Okay. So he says, a few months back on Rush Fans, we asked our followers to rank their favorite Rush albums by personal preference. Now that list is a little bit close to our listeners' response list, so I'm not going to read that just yet. Okay. He says, my personal favorite top five does not contain any of those five records that people said were their favorites. My top five personal favorites would be Power Windows, Snakes and Arrows, Signals, Counterparts, and Hold Your Fire. Okay. That being said, the list that I believe are the top five best Rush albums looks a lot like the top five list, the personal favorites from the project that we did. So again, I'm not going to mention that because it looks just like ours. He said, I excluded 2112 from the top five of what I think are considered the best because I think Signals is more complete than 2112 and 2112 is quite top heavy, meaning that it's, you know, only the first side is, is really the best. I think I would be considered an idiot if I tried to argue <laughs> that my favorite two records in Power Windows and Snakes and Arrows are actually better than the top two albums that people said were the best. I respect those records and accept that they are phenomenal records, but my preferences are vastly different than what I deem to be the best. You catching this? Uh, I'm catching it, but I think <laughs> he, here's the thing. I love Ryan. You know that. Of course. But I'm calling BS on this because I think <laughs> this is just Ryan's way of putting 10 albums in his top five list. <laughs> which we didn't do, right? That's true. I didn't think of that. Yeah. He's going to put power windows, hold your fire, snakes and arrows, and he's going to grab moving pictures, 
A Farewell to Kings and Permanent Waves, right? He right. gets all of exactly. them. Exactly. He gets all of them. Yeah, I disagree too, because I I don't know how to objectively say that one album is better than the other. Obviously, I think it's objectively better or wouldn't be my favorite. Do you know what I mean? Right. And anybody's definition of what is an objectively good something is only based on a whole bunch of other criteria that you could argue against, right? All of that stuff is based on just the culture around you and what somebody else has written about it. So I don't know where that distinction is. So we asked our listeners their top five Rush albums. We didn't say pick your favorite or which is the best. We just asked them to pick a top five. Right. Because in my mind, they're the, they're the same list. It is the same list. I, I completely disagree with Ryan. <laughs> I told him that. We were going back and forth in, in messaging each other about it. And I was just like, I don't agree at all. He didn't agree with me. So there you go. We were at a standstill. So anyway, you asked our email group to send us their top five. And I asked our Twitter followers to send us their top five. And we compiled all those. And the way we scored it was if you picked an album number one, it got five points. If you picked it number two, it got four points and so on down to one point for your fifth choice. Yes. I compiled all the Twitter stuff, sent it out to you. And I don't know what happened after that. You're going to tell me how these albums ranked from 20 down to one. Right. There was a little bit of voodoo economics when it got to me, but are we going to go through all 20? Yeah, let's do it. Why not? Okay. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank Every, I sent an email of thanks to every person who responded. Wow. Individually? Individually. Because wow. uh, the flood of emails was immediate. I probably had like 30 emails the first day and then others came in for the rest of the week. And I was still compiling some today. Somebody sent me a couple of emails and some people sent emails just yesterday and today. So nice. here we go. There were only three albums that didn't get any votes at all. No votes? No votes. Okay. Nobody voted them in their top five at all. And those were Feedback, Roll the Bones, and the first album. Okay. I understand Feedback. You know, I would think the first album would have got a little bit of love. Yeah. And I would think that Roll the Bones would have gotten at least one mention in top five. People seem to like that album a lot. Yeah. When we talked about Roll the Bones, we got a lot of people telling us it was their favorite album. I guess they didn't email you. I guess not. I guess not. They lost out. <laughs> they lost out in letting their opinions be known. Um, so then coming in at number 17 is Test for Echo. Okay. Also not surprising. Uh, 16 is Fly by Night, which I found surprising. I just thought it would be much higher. Well, maybe not though, because after those four albums, for me, it gets kind of tough. Somebody's got to be 16, right? That's right. And then at number 15 is Caress of Steel. So Caress of Steel is above Fly by Night. But honestly, Jer, every album you name from here on in is a fantastic album. That's right. So what can you do? Yeah. So let's go through them. 14 is Presto. 13 is Snakes and Arrows. 12 is Vapor Trails. 11 is Hold Your Fire. 10 is Counterparts. 9 is Grace Under Pressure. 8 is 2112. 7 is Power Windows. And 6 is Clockwork Angels. So Clockwork Angels just missed coming in the top five. So now we've got the top five definitive list, something for nothing podcast listeners who felt compelled to email you about this list. It's their top five. Here it is. Right. <laughs> way, to, way to narrow down the pool of people who responded. So coming in at number five is A Farewell to Kings. And then four is Signals. Three is Hemispheres. 
Two is permanent waves. And number one is, of course, Steve. It's moving pictures. It's moving pictures. Moving pictures won by a landslide. Permanent waves was a smaller landslide. And then hemispheres, signals, and a farewell to kings were relatively close. But a farewell to kings and signals were only one point away from each other. So they could flip at any moment. Because you're going to keep doing this as people keep sending emails. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) TheRushCast at gmail.com. Send Jerry your emails. Six months from now, someone's going to listen to it and send it an email. I'll I'll tack it on. Sure. I'll put it up on the wall over here. Um, But I'll go back to Ryan's email. When he asked the followers of the Instagram page, they got 551 responses. Okay. And theirs was number five was 2112. Uh, Farewell to Kings was number four, Hemispheres three, Permanent Waves two, and Moving Pictures number one. So the only difference was 2112 and Signals. And since he had 551 responses, his data is probably a little better than ours. But it's so close, right? Yeah. It's very close. So here's the question. Was Ryan's number one best Rush album, Moving Pictures? Not his favorite, the best, according to Ryan. Yes. His top five were our top five from our listeners just in a slightly different order his were signals hemispheres farewell to kings permanent waves and moving pictures so he believes moving pictures is the best but it's not his favorite rush album that is correct okay i'm not sure what to make of that myself but (laughs) anyway as i told you jar just in time for the holidays there's a new rush book out it's called rush gigs found in the studio walls And in the concert halls, we are lucky enough to have the two main contributors to the book with us today. And both are friends of the podcast, Jer. That's right. F-O-P. F-O-P. Writer Ray Warzniak. You can hear him on episodes 40 and 57 of our podcast as well. And editor Mark Irwin. He joined us all the way back on episode 30 of our podcast. Ray and Mark, welcome back to the Rush Fancast. Hello, boys. Steve, Jerry, I'm ridiculously happy to see the both of you. If not mistaken, Ray, this is your third time. Yeah, listen, this is this is almost a dream come true. It's every parent's dream to have their kid grow up to be a guest on this podcast at least <laughs> three times. I've succeeded at that. My goal still is to be the first member of the Five Timers Club. I want one of those SNL era Five Timers Club jackets. So thanks for inviting me back for the third time. Happy to see the both of you. Thanks for allowing this to happen. Notice he did say almost. <laughs> almost. Yeah. He had to qualify it. So. Mark, this is your second time with us. And why don't you start by explaining to us what exactly this book is and how did it come about, Mark? So this book is a book of gigs. Um, it's photos, of the gig posters from around the world, along with ticket stubs, some advertisements, a lot of ephemera that maybe not all Rush fans have seen and presented chronologically with some back information about those gigs of what happened during that time. And the way it came about is very simple. Rush had come to me really hot off the heels of us agreeing to do the art of Rush, which I did at at a company called IDW. And they had said they wanted to do this book and we kind of started looking into it and the timeline progressed to a point where we had no time and we pulled the trigger and started building the book. So that's kind of how it came about. And how did you build the book, Ray? Were a lot of these posters in your vast, vast collection? 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say a fair percentage of the posters were indeed generated from my collection, but I was one of a team of people who contributed to the final product. When the project was first proposed to me, of course, I went through all of my posters. I mean, originally it was just going to be gig posters. There's so many rush posters, but this originally was specifically going to be a book celebrating or recognizing, including some specific gig posters, not a general rush poster or a tour poster. This was a book that would include, you know, rush with opening guests, Nazareth, May 10th of 83, specific gigs. And of course I had a fair amount of those within my collection here at my fingertips, but past that, I knew that there were a lot of ads that included specific gig references or whether it was magazine or newspaper ads that had specific gig references, that once we started expanding past just gig posters that might be in somebody's collection into magazines and articles, that opened up the availability tenfold. Now, how rare are some of these posters, especially the ones from the early days, the 74 through 76 era rush? How, how rare are these? How many copies of them exist? I think there are some that are incredibly rare. There are some that only during the course of working on this project had I come across for the first time, which I think considering the expertise and the experience of the four of us, there is still that recognition and thrill. I see something for the first time. Hey, holy cow, for all my years of collecting and following the band to see something for the first time still gives me an incredible thrill. So within this book, there are gig posters or ads that I had still never seen before prior to the creation of this book. So there are a lot in there that are definitively rare. Yeah. The Caruso Steel era, you know, for me, I mean, that's, that's kind of the album that made me a Rush fan and seeing like some of the ads and the way Mercury was really touting them during that, that time, super exciting, super fun just to see a lot of that old graphic design and how those how those posters were put together and just so cool. Again, you know, Caressa Steel seems to be the most underreported era of Rush period. Um, so it is kind of nice to to see like so much stuff that we were able to collate for this book come out of that time. Steve Jerry, can I elaborate on Mark's point there about the graphic design? Something that I do find I found particularly interesting is as you look through all the gig posters presented in this book, a lot of the ads that are presented in this book. I wrote about this in the, in the introduction that it's amazing to see some of these graphic designers who were given the creative freedom to be able to promote this gig as they see fit or as they saw fit. I don't know how some of these graphic designers couldn't just lean on the artistic genius of Hugh Syme. If you're creating a gig poster for a Rush gig, How do you not just lean on the man and star logo? How do you not lean on some of the iconic imagery that Hugh Syme has given us over the years? But instead, some of these graphic designers came up with some ads that I couldn't help but laugh at (laughs) and then wonder, why would you not use what you have at your disposal? Some of the things that you will see that those of you listening to this podcast will see in this book are some graphic designers taking advantage of the creative freedom that they were obviously given. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we're definitely going to go over some of our favorites, let's say, some of the some of the odder ones, the weirder ones. But you know, the interesting thing about this book is not just the nostalgic feel, you know, that Rush fans can get from seeing these posters, but also just the nostalgia of 
a time when posters were necessary, where you would walk around a city or go to a record store and you would see the poster like, oh my God. And then that was the first time you heard that a band was on tour. Like, oh, they're playing wherever, my, my local Coliseum on the 12th of, uh, of November. I've got to go get tickets now. You know, and there was a time when that was the, really one of the only ways you could find out if a band was even playing somewhere. Well, coming from an era now where we have the internet, we can you know, view things, we can hold on to things repeatedly forever. The time back then was so different, right? Because art was such a throwaway form. The fact that you're pasting a band bill on a telephone pole only to be ripped down the night after your show, you know, seeing art that's so wonderful to me being an artist, you know, and knowing that it was just tossed away, tossed aside. I mean, thank goodness for the people that did manage to at least take photos or scan these things over time, because without them, who knows, you know, I mean, it's not Rush wasn't producing these posters themselves, you know, these posters were being produced by the local townships or whatever that were putting up that show that night. So the fact that we still have access to these things is pretty incredible. That was going to be my next question, Mark. Do hard copies of all of these exist or are some of them just simply scans that someone took years ago? Well, we broke into Ray's house um, <laughs> and, and managed to get, I would say, 94% of them. The other 6%, we broke into his car. (laughs) That was a good one. He's giving me too much credit, guys. It was 93%, my house, not 94%. He's much too generous. Steve, okay, back to Mark's point about the, uh, you know, maybe the disposability of some of the posters from X number of years ago. Conversely, some might say that what's created now is much more disposable, that that work that was created in the 70s, Jerry, you said, you know, to see these posters at your local record store. Yeah, first you would realize, holy cow, I didn't know Rush is coming to town. But then the collector in me would say, wow, I don't know they're coming to town. And by the way, I want that poster. <laughs> I want to walk out with it. And in, 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 I'm not embarrassed to say, in many cases, there are some posters I have that were on display at certain events. There's one that did not make its way into the book. I saw Getty on November 24th of 2000 at the Penn Center in St. Catharines at that time promoting my favorite headache. Did you like the ease with which I just let that date roll off my tongue? I like that one. Anyway, there at the event that night, I I just was not going to leave without taking out that placard that was at the front of the store advertising his appearance. Or similarly, one of his appearances in 2019 promoting his big book of base, there was this life-size poster that I thought, well, I've got to, I have to have that. So some of these posters are ones that I'm sure fans who are buying this book are going to flip through the book and look at a poster and say, yeah, I remember seeing that at my record store. I remember seeing that at the mall. I remember seeing that at the gig. I wanted that poster. Or in some cases, some fans might say, yeah, I have that poster. I did take that down off of the telephone pole. I did take that down off of the wall. Thank goodness you're on bail, uh, you know, from the time that you shot <laughs> those Getty Lee appearances so that you could be here for this podcast. Yes. Thank you. This is my one and only call, by the way. <laughs> so we thought it would be fun, guys, to just pick out some of the posters we like best and just talk about them. Why don't we start with the first one, the poster from the first show in the United States, Northside Drive-In, Lansing, Michigan, opening for Dr. John. Do you own this one, Ray? 
No, uh, I don't, but I think I'll let Mark speak to that one. Mark, I think you know the one that Steve and Jerry are referencing there. I'll let Mark. I, I don't own that one. That one was new to me as well. I had seen it in one other publication, but uh, Mark, you want to take that one? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, well, it's not like I own it either, but uh, <laughs> um, basically that poster, what's really interesting about that poster is that obviously Dr. John did not make the show. That is the, I think, somewhat notorious uh, New York Dolls gig. And um, just a cool, you know, pretty simple image. Um, I've heard some people say that the image itself might be from a later time, but I am not familiar with that. I, I thought, I think it's pretty legit. I mean, it was provided to us as legit. So I'm going to say it's legit. <laughs> And Ray, to your earlier point about some of the, um, let's say, liberties that some mm-hmm. of the artists on these posters took. There's one from 1978 yeah. from the yes. Tour of the Hemispheres. December of 78. That's right. December 3rd, 1978, which yeah. has what I'm assuming is a naked woman. Yes, a silhouette of a naked woman. Yes. But it's also not a human woman. Let's put it that way. I don't know. Exactly. I think it's assume was the right word. <laughs> <laughs> it's an, it's, it's assumed into a, the shape of a woman. I, what does that have to do? Do you think with, with rush or the tour itself? Like, why is this poster? Why did somebody draw that? There's, there's an easy comedic parallel to be made between that specific poster and the sense of humor that the guys in rush share. <laughs> that, that, that's the only logical explanation. Yeti Alex Neal had a great sense of humor. So too, obviously, did the designer of that poster. He must have had quite a sense of humor. And he decided, I'm going to put the silhouette of this pseudo naked kind of human woman on the poster and see if I can get away with it. There we go. That's my only logical conclusion is the parallel in humor between the designer and the band that he was celebrating. That specific poster, I know that I made reference to that one in my introduction, somewhere within the introduction, I don't have it in front of me, but I know I talked about the designers and some of the liberties they were taking. And I think I said something like, for example, there's no, or, there's no better example than the December 3rd or 4th poster that's included here in this book. So all of you who are listening to this podcast at home, press pause, grab your copy of Rush Gigs, turn <laughs> the poster, look at the one celebrating December 3rd or 4th tour of the hemispheres and join with the four of us and laughing at its nature (laughs) and was there any kind of conversation do you think between any of these promoters who i assume were the ones who commissioned some of these gig posters and the band at all or are they just doing whatever they wanted and could cut and paste any kind of rush type of logo onto this thing i think later on in their career they probably had promotion people around them that would provide a package, you know, that would go out uh, as the tour was being planned and people would use that stuff. But I think in the early days, you know, it was a little bit like the wild west. I mean, um, some of these gigs, you know, rush was the opening band, you know, so, you know, I'm sure that the promoters were more talking to Rory Gallagher uh, rather than rush who was saying, I'll just, just put my name up there. I don't have a Rory Gallagher logo, you know, and yeah. Rush was just a supporting act. So I think, I think over time that became a thing because you will see, as you go through the gig posters, you will see more of a reliance on Hugh Symes art or Andrew McNaughton's photography or, you know, things like that. You'll, you'll see more of a reliance on that as you go through 
through the book. But certainly in the early days, I think it was, as Ray succinctly put it, you know, it was uh, a chance to be creative and not necessarily to the confines of uh, what Rush had already produced. I think that made the, the posters from the latter part of their career or the ads from the latter part of their career maybe a little less creative because on the R30 posters, you know, they were very similar. The Snakes and Arrows era posters and ads were very similar, but the ones from the first half of their career were decidedly unique as the ones, Jerry, that you brought up there is stands out because of how unique it is, because it doesn't rely on a particular imagery. Or good taste. <laughs> yes. That uh, there's one for a hem- for hemispheres in the book that is just it's stunning. I mean, it's kind of visually stunning and it's different and creative and unique. And uh, you know, the one with the uh, with the two sides of the brain. It's uh, it's kind of kind of a fun ad, you know. That's the one where the two sides are like dipped in gold, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, that was a crazy one. <laughs> Gold mind, I believe is the tagline. It's a gold mind. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I didn't say it was well, but <laughs> it's visually stunning. <laughs> Another one that stood out for me, not for the, the look of the poster, but the text. It was an ad promoting the fact that circus readers voted Rush the second best new group of 1975. And Ray, I ask you, who was the first? <laughs> Give me a minute to think of a sarcastic or comedic response to that one there. <laughs> you must have this circus magazine, no? Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna guess that that ad came from somewhere within my collection here. I can't I can't remember I can't remember scanning that one. You don't know who the first one in the reader's poll was? Certainly I certainly don't. <laughs> well, my, my encyclopedic knowledge has a is suddenly taken a hit. That's the that's the Caruso Steel ad. Yeah. That's a good one too, because it says one, two, three on it. And they, they right. playfully, I can't remember exactly what it says. First, second, third. Yes. Okay. That yeah. particular ad. Yeah. That was a, that was a later addition to the book. That was a, a good find and a later addition, that particular one. I can't particularly say if I had indeed seen that ad prior to the creation of this awesome collection or not, but I do know the one you're referencing. And you, you did say that, you know, later on, you know, as their own production team would come up with, with ideas and, and send them out, you know, for press purposes and whatnot. There is one from 2007 snakes and arrows tour. It's June 25th, 2007 at an outdoor shed in Pittsburgh. That is unique in this later era because it looks like it's hand drawn. It's on like a, I don't know, like a, like a mustard colored paper. The Pittsburgh one, the Pittsburgh one. Yeah. Do you remember where that woman's from? No, I, I can't recall the source of that one. I know the poster that you're referencing. I can't recall the source, but I will say that, okay, that one recognizes or promotes a show from Pittsburgh, as you cited there on the Snakes and Arrows tour. One thing that we were aware of is not to have any one particular city represented too many times within the book. Pittsburgh is a city that you all know, and those of you listening probably know that Rush played many multiple times over the course of their career. And there's other cities that were cities that Rush visited religiously on every tour for which we had ads or posters for many of them, but didn't want to have 25 different posters celebrating a gig in Pittsburgh. But that one was worthy of inclusion, uh, Jerry and D, because of how unique it is. 
compared to the other Snakes and Arrows era posters. I think the other thing that's unusual about that particular poster is not just the fact that it's hand-drawn during that era when they were using photos basically of the album cover or you know album art to promote the band, but it also is using you know like Russia's first logo. It's not using an updated logo. And you know, Rush does always have that unique kind of thing about them about changing the logo of the band with, mm-hmm. you know, subsequent albums as they went through time. So I thought that that was a really interesting design choice as well. I mean, that poster looks like it could be from 73 or 74, you know, it doesn't look like a 2007 poster. That's right. You know, another one that jumped out at me was a poster from September to October, 1976, the, all the world's a stage tour yeah. poster. It's a rocket blasting off and it says lift off. <laughs> A tour of the outer planets. So not only did they just come up with their own logo, they came up with their own slogan for the tour, which I would imagine Rush wasn't using, right? Mm, no. How cool is that one, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad you picked that one out. That was another late edition of the collection, and that one is just super cool. Holy cow. Those of you listening who haven't bought this book, buy it now. Just so you can look at the coolness of this ad that Steve is referencing. Yeah, Steve, that one is uber cool. <laughs> right? But it's something that Rush would never have approved of, right? I would assume so. I also think what's cool about it is it's a summation of an entire Western Canada swing. Mm-hmm. So that that's also kind of unique and, and somewhat funny to me is like, Hey, we're going to, we're going we're to sum up all of Western Canada, this one ad, That's right. we're going to throw our own artwork over it, and our own tagline and, you know, let the, let the chips fall where they may, but they did make manage to put the little star man up in the, uh, <laughs> up in the top of the ad. And so. they're <laughs> sticking it to Western Canada by calling them the outer planets too, right? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, when you leave, when you leave Montreal, it's all, it's all prairie, right? Isn't it all prairie until you get to the, to the West Coast? I it's don't not know. not another planet though. Come on. <laughs> that ad lists all those respective Western Canadian dates. There's an ad in there from the permanent waves tour that also lists a, a bunch of Canadian dates. And I, I couldn't help but look at all these respective gig posters, all these ads and almost feel the fatigue myself of 40 years of relentless touring and touring and all the touring that they did. That's one thing that was impressed upon me. Once I got past the coolness of the art and the awesomeness just of the collection of all of this Rush memorabilia was an even greater appreciation for the longevity of their career, for the price that they paid with all these years of touring. I know that at the end there, Mark, I know I ended up including that bit somewhere in my introduction just about the fabulous price. I paralleled it to the lyric from Mission. We each pay a fabulous price for our visions of paradise. The the fabulous price that those guys and their crew paid by the relentless touring for all those years kind of came across to me looking at this gig book as you turn the pages and look at city after city and tour after tour and all these cities around the world i got exhausted on their behalf just looking at it definitely a marathon and crazy to think that i i I mean you know that is a bit of a 70s kind of thing with a lot of bands which was the album cycle tour cycle 
um, you know, one after the other, no, no relief, no uh, Van Halen, for instance, infamously recorded Diver Down because the record company made them do it. You know, they were trying to take a break and the record company demanded a new album and a follow-up tour for, from them. And they were not ready. They, they were exhausted. And that's why so much of that album is cover songs. Mm-hmm. But I think Rush, like, you know, we can get into hyperbole. We all know how we feel about this great band, but the reality of not only how much they toured, but the quality level with which they toured, the quality with, which they recorded and put out albums. I mean, it is stunning and no disrespect meant to any other band, but they, they really are the greatest band that we've ever been blessed with because of what they did. They backed it up. It's not just a, a thought or a feeling because of the albums you like or whatever. It's literally backed up on paper with, you know, and these guys were incredible. They just did incredible things, you know? What, what they what they did, Steve Jerry, if if, if I may add, add on to that, please. Sure. Uh, what what they did, indeed, what they did, and for as long as they did it, as, as tough as it was for the four of us and you listening at home, as tough as it was for all of us to accept the fact that the R forty tour was indeed their last. Working on this book and looking at all these gig posters really helped me come to the conclusion that holy cow, their retirement was deserved quite frankly they they deserved it and mark mentioned moments ago how we all feel about this great band if i can get off of that tangent for a moment if you don't mind within the last month a month ago five weeks ago whenever i bought the new super deluxe edition release of the beatles let it be so here we are now in 2021 50 years later 51 years later celebrating still the legacy of the Beatles. And everybody knows the Beatles legacy is one that should be celebrated and deserves to be celebrated. But so too should Rush's legacy. This book to me is just another way of celebrating a band that deserves to be celebrated just as much as the Beatles do. The Beatles were an important band in so many ways, culturally, musically, and and otherwise. But Rush is no less important. Rush is just as important to their fan base as the Beatles were to their fan base. This book, to me, it's just another way of... Mark, you said how we feel about this great band. They deserve to be celebrated. They deserve to be recognized. There's so much about the band to be celebrated. This great book is another way of celebrating this band that we all love. I'm going to get a tissue now. And <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, that's something that Billy Corgan said in the documentary, Beyond the Lighted Stage. He said, you know, the Beatles had been over-explained, the Stones had been over-explained, but no one, you know, ha- has explained exactly what Rush is doing in that same kind of space. And I think we're seeing that now, right? Now that there is no more new Rush music, we're seeing a lot of books, right? We're seeing a lot of books examining Rush's legacy. Yeah, and I've actually read online some people pseudo-complaining about respective projects that have come out since the band's retirement, and I just can't understand that. This is a band that deserves to be celebrated. If we're recognizing in 2021 the 50th anniversary of Let It Be, well, holy cow, why can't we in 2062 celebrate the 50th anniversary of Rush's final record? Their body of work 
deserves these 40th anniversaries, these 50th anniversaries. However, the band is, can be celebrated, it will be celebrated. This Rush Gigs book celebrates in one way their legacy. And I think most importantly, from our standpoint too, is the fact that uh, this is, I don't know, the fourth or fifth or sixth rush related project i've I've been really you know blessed and and very thankful to have worked on and you know like ray having the trust of their management team and knowing that i'm a fan but i also know how to publish books and i know what i'm doing and i and i really just want to do them justice like uh the the fact that we're trusted to do that honestly it's like a dream come true these are the publishing projects that you dream about when you decide to get into publishing you know um working on the things that you really care about so and mark and his team not that i didn't kind of sense this already but this only reaffirmed mark's true sense of professionalism the professionalism of mark and his team were very evident i think i'm good at creating the illusion of professionalism but not Mark. His, <laughs> his professionalism is real. And it was just an incredible honor to work with Mark in this capacity and to see the fruition of real professionalism. Yeah, I, I feel that because Steve and I, uh, we do the same thing, the illusion of professionalism every week, I think. <laughs> you know, we talked about our favorite posters in the book. Uh, do you guys have a favorite? Mark, what's your favorite poster in the book? That's pretty tough. I I really like the uh, the Mercury ad for All the World's a Stage. That was something that I had never seen before. You know, you get the impression, you know, I, I became a Rush fan in what, 81 or whatever. You get the impression that perhaps Rush wasn't pushed as hard as, you know, other legacy acts like them in that day. So it's kind of refreshing seeing an ad from the record label you know, just really pushing, uh, you know, the Caressa steel ad is, is the other one that, that really stuck out to me as well. Just really cool. Like seeing, Hey, the label cares about them. They're putting out these things. They're really pushing it not only to fans, but also to the industry, because I believe the later all the world's a stage ad is actually a, a, an industry ad. It's not a ad that was geared toward the fans. It was geared toward the record recording industry itself. So, um, I thought that was super cool, you know? What about you, Ray? Any favorites that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, there's an ad. Uh, I apologize. It's not in front of me. There's an ad from November 1981 promoting their brief tour in support of Exit Stage Left that has a mirror image of the Man in Star logo. Mark, oh, yeah, you know, the, yeah. The one I'm referring to. I'm looking at it right now, Ray. Yeah, there was something about, I mean, first of all, I, I had never seen that one prior to work on this book. I'd never seen that one. And there's something about that one that the, the use of the man in star was done in a unique way. Uh, yeah, that one stood out to me. That one stood out uh, as well. How can we not reference the posters? Nothing really great artistically, but the poster celebrating the SARS show that the band did in July of 2003. That was one that Mark and I were pushing for inclusion that we would not let this book happen without the inclusion of that particular poster recognizing the performance, the band's performance in front of the largest audience ever. Now, is that the one where they performed with the Rolling Stones and ACDC and Justin Timberlake? No, it's the one where the Stones performed with Rush. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, uh, indeed, Steve. Yeah, that's the one. I was at that show. I was about as close to the stage as I am from here to who knows where, the state of Florida or something, for crying out loud. <laughs> Those are the worst seats I ever had for a rush show. Was it that one? And only twenty one fifty for the tickets. That's pretty good. Yeah. Can we talk? Do you, do you want to talk about that? Can we talk about flipping through the pages oh, yeah. of posters and looking at the prices and just shaking your head and thinking, good Lord, I could yeah, really rush for $4. Holy cow. Even when you adjust for inflation, it's really cheap. Yes. Yeah. As we sit here now in 2021 and almost kind of don't blink at plunking down $200 to see a band or artist knowing that we paid 850 or 650 or 450 to see rush i'm sure some of the people purchasing this book will find that fascinating just to look at the prices that people paid for the chance to see these guys mark mentioned hyperbole a little while ago and mark did a great job of of reining me in at times right hyperbole well where's the act yes <laughs> literally right there on the title <laughs> there were some times where I, I was writing just saying holy cow can you imagine seeing them in 1977 just just period i just wanted to write that can you imagine seeing them in 77 or can you imagine seeing them for four dollars and fifty cents yeah what about those prices right now yeah. wow I got one last one for you guys. Can you imagine being invited to a cocktail party celebrating Roll the Bones on December 6th, 1991? <laughs> Were you invited to that cocktail party, Ray? I was at that cocktail party. <laughs> Were you really? <laughs> But the question is, were you invited, Ray? <laughs> That's the question. Let's go along with your poster snatching. Were, were you actually allowed in? <laughs> Thankfully, my friend, I hope you're listening at home. My friend was on the invite list, and the two of us were at that cocktail party after their first show at Madison Square Garden in December, December 6th of 91, December 6th or December 7th of 91, after the gig at this party that Atlantic Records threw for the band, all, all three of the guys were there, Getty, Alex, and Neil were there, Andrew McNaughton was there, Ray Daniels was there, Ahmed Erdogan was there, all, all the big wigs were there, and and let's have another podcast in which I just tell you the stories <laughs> of, the, of the events of that night. You really are going to use this time to angle for appearance number four. <laughs> he wants here? to get to number five. <laughs> yes. So, so the answer to the question, Ray, is no, you were not invited. <laughs> I was the plus one for that part. How about that? Well, as you said in the introduction, Ray, uh, these posters truly allowed us to live it all again. Thanks to you and Mark for sharing these terrific memories with us. Thanks for having Mark and I on. This project obviously was an incredible labor of love. I appreciate the two of you giving us this forum to share the project with those people who might not be aware of it yet. Last night, trying to get the word out about the book, I did uh, a book signing. It was at my kitchen table. Uh, <laughs> nobody, nobody showed up. But uh, still, I tried to get the word out. So we appreciate you giving us this opportunity to get the word out. I'm encouraging all Rush fans listening, buy this book. It's another great way to support the legacy of this band that we all love. So really, thank you to the two of you for what you're doing to continue to celebrate Rush. Thanks for having the two of us on. And the place to get it is Rush Backstage, correct? Indeed, yes. For now. Um, and I believe that the there were signed copies. I believe it's already sold out. Um, so hurry quickly 
get your copies as soon as you can because uh, I know that they're selling quick. And I think Backstage is going to be, I'm not sure if they're truncating their uh, service window during the holidays or not, but those books are going to go. So be prepared. Well, thanks, guys, and happy holidays to you. Happy holidays. So, Jer, every time we talk to Ray and Mark, it's always a fun conversation, and today was no different. Yeah, that's true. It's great talking <laughs> to both of them. Ray is a very excitable boy, isn't he? He is a ray of sunshine. That's what he is. <laughs> he loves Rush. I don't know if you've noticed that. He <laughs> loves Rush. And when I saw that invitation to the Roll the Bones party, I said to myself, Ray had to be there. He had to. <laughs> I had to ask him that. And of course he was. Yeah, that's true. I, I, did we go to that show, Steve? I'd have to look it up. What? We didn't go to the cocktail party. No, the Roll the Bones show at Madison Square Garden that night. We oh, we been probably there. did. Yeah, we probably did. I wish I knew about a cocktail party. I would have crashed it too. Yeah, I'm sure I would have looked for the for the green awning or whatever it said on that thing. <laughs> but Ray wanted me to point out that he did not crash it. He was a plus one. That's right. He was a plus one. He was a plus one. So his friend was invited and he went with his friend. So it's not really a crash. No, of course not. He was secondhand invited. I've been plus one many times, thanks to you, Steve. So... It's not really crashing. I like messing with Ray. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this gigs posters book is terrific. And as we mentioned, you can get it at the rush backstage club, pick up your copy today, just in time for the holidays. I don't know if it'll fit in my stocking chair for you. Oh yeah. I have a very small feet. So I don't <laughs> think it will. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter. We are at rush Fancast. Instagram. You can find us at the rush cast. Email Jerry, send him your top five Rush albums. He's going to be compiling these lists forever at therushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro, that's Lex. We didn't get his top five, did we? No, we didn't. We got to get Lex's and put it into the the hopper, right? (laughs) Yeah. Subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app. And Jerry, I hope you have a great quote to wrap this up for us. I do, Steve, as always. Of course. And of course, it's from the Spirit of Radio. For the words of the prophets written on the studio wall, concert hall, and echoes with the sound of salesmen. Nice. Thanks, Jer. All right. See you later. Have a good one.